You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. So good to see you all here tonight. Uh, my name is Nathan. It looks like we've got a bunch of folks who may be visiting with us for the first time with us here on Zoom tonight. We're really glad that you are here with us. And in some senses, these days and weeks, they're all starting to run together. Earlier this week, I had my first real moment of actual confusion about what day it was. Like, I had no idea if it was Wednesday or if it was Thursday. And even these meetings are kind of doing the same. I'm I'm sitting here in the same spot in my dining room, uh, the same chair that I've sat in for the past, I think, five Sundays. And yet this one's different. One, because my, my face has experienced a bit of a resurrection uh, today. I've gotten many texts from you uh, in the past uh, 20 or 30 minutes uh, saying that you think that my son or someone is, is on the screen this evening. I shaved this weekend for the first time since we've begun staying home maybe like five weeks ago. And yet, this one is also different for more reasons than my facial hair. One, uh, well, because that... Just while it's true that every Sunday is a resurrection Sunday, a remembrance and a celebration of what Jesus has accomplished in his death and resurrection, today is a day that we mark, that we remember the hinge of over which history, the history of the entire universe turns. For the past three weeks, we've been working our way through Paul's letter to an early church of Christians in the Turkish city of Colossae. And we call, this, we call this letter Colossians or the letter to the Colossians. If you have a Bible nearby uh, somewhere in your house, I'd encourage you to find that now. Uh, have it open in front of you. Uh, so much of what I'm about to say will make a whole lot more sense if you can see the words that you heard Nena read just a minute ago. Uh, Colossians is a little past the midway point of the New Testament in between the letters of Philippians and 1 Thessalonians. Or just you can use the, the table of contents there at the front of your Bible. And we're in chapter 1. In these past two weeks that we've been together, we've thought through Paul's thankfulness of all that God has already done in the Colossians and giving them a deep and secure faith, a growing love and hope. And then how Paul turned his prayer uh, last week we saw toward the future and how he hoped God would increase their understanding, increase their experience of the gospel that Jesus has accomplished for them, that God would continue his work of total transformation in these Colossians. And then right at the end last week, we saw Paul begin to explain what Jesus has come to do. We saw in verses 13 and 14 of last week that Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In verses 15 through 20, what we're going to think through and uh, consider this evening All of this is going to flow right out of where we left off last week. Paul is going to further consider who Jesus is and the importance of that universe-shifting hinge of the empty tomb. So we'll consider this paragraph this evening in two halves, since Paul is seemingly considering two halves of history. I think he's considering the creation of the world and life up into the coming of Christ, and then he's going to consider the recreation or a new creation of the world and life after the coming of Christ. So with Paul, tonight we're going to consider Jesus as first the Lord of creation, and then secondly as the Lord of new creation. 
So first of all, the Lord of creation in verse 15 again, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And this is just an incredible string of three sentences that Paul has put together. I mean, just think about what Paul has just said. For those of us who are Christians, we know, we we believe Jesus to be fully man and fully God, the the second person of the Trinity. Even though in all of this, even that mind-blowing reality, we can tend towards minimizing the very real life effects of this being true in our everyday life which is what this whole passage is about, to let the truth of that reality begin to seep its way into more and more of our life. But even for folks who aren't Christians, maybe some of you who are with us today, you'd likely still know, you would likely perhaps even consider Jesus to be one or two or three of the most influential humans that have ever lived. And yet here these folks are in Colossae. 20 or 25 years after the crucifixion of a guy whose life, relatively speaking, wouldn't have barely made an immediate ripple in the world. He lived in the backwoods of the Roman Empire. He really was only a public figure for about three years, not like a decades-long momentum-building claim to fame and celebrity or something. He He was here and there and gone. And then he died a criminal's death, among other criminals, which happened every day, everywhere. People in Turkey wouldn't have even known that he was alive while he was alive when teaching and ministering, much less that something on the day that we call Good Friday, something monumental and universally cataclysmic was happening. They would have had no idea. And yet... In real time, in real history, 20 to 25 years later, real people in Colossae, about a a thousand miles away from Jerusalem, came to believe that this man was actually God. This would be like us uh, believing that some guy in the late 1990s, in like 1998, when Friends was still on and the Backstreet Boys were at the height of their powers. Uh, This is like during that time. 20 or so years ago, some guy in New Orleans, a city that's like a thousand miles away from Albuquerque. We came to believe today in 2020 that this guy in 1998 in New Orleans was actually God. Now, of course, all kinds of people can have religious beliefs about things that may or may not be true, especially the further away in time and location it gets. The difference with the rise of Christianity is that this thing gets started with an insanely miraculous and public event, a dead man that rises from the dead. He then appears to thousands of witnesses, including this Paul who is writing this letter, a publicly verifiable event in which if it did not happen, it would have been very easy for the religious authorities and opponents of Christianity to just completely snuff this thing out. And so for these early Christians who claim to be eyewitnesses, they aren't anything like the founders of other world religions who have a private and supposedly um, real and influential encounter with the divine or something. And then then they get other people to believe this encounter with the divine. But you'll just have to trust me. People have sincere but untrue beliefs all the time about all kinds of things. Christianity, of course, just depends and hinges upon an empty tomb. In fact... 
As we profess in our faith together this evening from 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then of all people in the world, Christians should uh, just be, the world should just feel so sorry for us about how dumb and gullible we are, that we have banked our life and reality on something that is not true. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, if Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead, well then now Paul is going to begin to start working out what that means for these Colossians and for us. What that means, that this man who grew up in the most backwoods region of a backwoods nation, this man who grew up as a lowly carpenter and then began teaching about the kingdom of God with greater wisdom than anyone since Solomon, that this guy as who was executed as a criminal was actually the image of the invisible God. None of us can see God the Father. Paul is saying, if you would like to know what God is most clearly like, Jesus is it. He is God made visible, the invisible made visible. He is ruling on the Father's behalf, a role that Adam and all of humanity was intended to live into as the image of God. And yet, this doesn't just mean that Jesus was like uh, an especially spiritual guy who acts and lives like the divine. He's like a, a window into a more real and supernatural world or something. No, Paul goes on to say that he is, in fact, the firstborn of all creation, which is a confusing verse and a confusing phrase for modern Westerners. We might be tempted to think that Jesus is like the first thing that was created by God, or even that he is like the chronologically, he is like chronologically God's first offspring or something. But there are two things in play here from the Old Testament that I think Paul very much and very clearly has in mind as he writes this phrase. Paul is first referring to Jesus as the full fulfillment of Israel, the nation of Israel. Several months ago, if you were with us through the book of Exodus, we saw in Exodus 4, we saw God call the nation of Israel his firstborn son. The nation took on a corporate reality of honor and of inheritance like firstborn sons in ancient societies would have had. God calls his firstborn son out of slavery, out of Egypt. And so Jesus is, as God's firstborn son of all creation, the one who ultimately fulfills the role that Israel was meant to carry out of living in obedience to God as God's means to bless the entire world. Jesus is living into that as the firstborn. And he's also, Paul, likely having in mind places like Psalm 89, where David is called God's firstborn son. David isn't the first man. He isn't Adam. He isn't the firstborn man. He's not the first one who God makes promises to and works through, like Abraham. He's not the first king of Israel, like Saul. He's not even the firstborn son of his own family. David was the eighthborn, the youngest son. But David gets elevated to a place of preeminence not just within his family, but to a place of preeminence and ruling over the entire kingdom. And so Paul is saying that Jesus is the firstborn of the created world. He is the fulfillment of all of the blessings promised to Israel and an inheritance to dwell with God and then bless the world. And he is the fulfillment of the throne promised to David of, of a kingdom to reign with God. He's not some created or uh, actual progeny or offspring of God. He is the firstborn, the preeminent one. This 
executed carpenter from two decades ago. And not only that, Paul's just getting going. He says in verse 16, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul is saying that in the same way that it would be unbelievably startling with like a double take or two of like, did he just say what? That like if we if someone had said that a guy in 1998 in New Orleans pre-existed for eternity and created the universe, that he is holding even now the universe together, that is shocking. And we would rightly like raise an eyebrow and wave that off as ridiculous. But we Christians believe that about Jesus. And though we may take it for granted, it's crazy. It's crazy. And yet that's exactly the claim that these early Christians who saw a man who was violently executed come back to life, walk around for a few weeks, and then ascend to heaven. Now, seeing and experiencing that would cause you to like totally rethink all of your categories of your own national history of Israel, of the categories of how you are to read and understand and interpret the Old Testament scriptures. And yet it makes total sense for these early Christians to come to that actually reasonable conclusion that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of God's promises, the one who is the Old Testament personified wisdom of God, the glory of God, the light of God, the word of God. Jesus of Nazareth is God, distinct from the Father and yet one with the Father, reasonable but wild. Paul is saying that everything and everyone in the universe is created by and for Jesus. The Sandia Mountains, a pink supermoon, red roses and red ants, all of it. Olympic athletes, politicians, even, and, and those with physical and mental disabilities. The entire created world whether big or small, powerful or vulnerable, created by and for Jesus. The word of God the Father, he has created it all and he has authority over all, over rulers and structures that can use their power to serve and bless the world, including Jesus being the ruler and the head of the body, the church. And he has authority over powers and structures that exploit and destroy He's the created king of spiritual powers that bring honor to God, and he is the created king of spiritual powers that dishonor God. Much more on that from in chapter 2. He is the ruler and has authority over all. Around the turn of the 1900s, uh, a, a Dutch theologian, a guy named Abraham Kuyper, is a guy who started a seminary. He was a pastor. He even started a new denomination. He founded a new political party in Holland and even became the prime minister for four years. Kuyper famously once said this, No single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest. And there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Not one square inch in the universe over which Christ does not cry mine. Not because he's a a selfish tyrant, 
but because he is the life-giving creator and sustainer of it all. All belongs to him because none can find its ultimate purpose apart from him. And this includes all of humanity. It includes me and it includes you. You were made by and for Jesus Christ. And whether you admit it or not, you belong to him and your life is under his authority. Which is why Augustine, St. Augustine in the 300s would say this. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Since you were made for God, you will not find ultimate and lasting purpose apart from him. Our hearts are ever restless until they find rest in the one who has made us. Made us by his power and for his power. By his authority and for his authority. Jesus is not someone to be minimized or marginalized or ignored. All of creation owes him our worship, our loyalty, and our love because he is worthy of it. And because he is the purpose and the goal in which we find our ultimate meaning and joy. And yet, in creation, there's been a great fracture. A giant crack in the universe brought about by rebellion and hatred of God. The Bible calls this sin. A co-rebellion from spiritual and human realms and powers to throw off the imagined shackles of the tyranny and the oppression of the goodness and the authority of God, of daily declaring to the heavens that I will not sit under your rules for me. Saying that, declaring that either in anger and defiance or in distrust and suspicion or in apathy and indifference. And so even though He is Jesus Messiah. He is Jesus the Christ, the fulfillment of all the promises of God, the first and the last, the creator and the sustainer. Humanity and the universe found itself, and even in some pockets of the universe and of this world and of this city, finds itself in confusion, in brokenness, and without hope. And so the second person of the triune God, the the pre-existent and creative word of God, the, the Father, Jesus of Nazareth, the second person becomes Jesus. He, he is in what we call the incarnation. He doesn't become less God, he, but he adds on a human nature. This is unbelievable. God becoming like us from glory to humility, from power to weakness, so that now he might fix and redeem what we have broken and corrupted. So that he he might become not just the Lord of creation, but now secondly, that he might become the Lord of new creation. The Lord of new creation. The second half of verse 18, Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn again. He says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Easter Sunday is not just a quaint holiday. It's a day of intentional remembrance of the first day of recreation, of the first day of a recreated world and a recreated age. On the Sunday morning following Passover, after a hectic week 
in Jerusalem, which many followers of a traveling rabbi from the north were convinced that he was entering the city like a new David to take his throne and to establish his kingdom. Now, after his execution, these followers were scattered, they were confused, and they were disappointed. It didn't happen. But on that Sunday morning, unbeknownst to them, in a pitch-dark tomb, the dead man, just like Adam before him, inhaled the very breath of God, and he opened his eyes. And like an acorn under the dark ground that cracks open as new and transformed life comes pouring out in search for the light, the power of God then cracks through the tomb so the resurrection and the recreation of the universe can begin pouring out so that the transformation of the age can begin. And there's a real sense in which after... Like the resurrection becomes like after a long and cold winter. We, most of us, we don't live in a place where there is long snow on the ground and it feels like it's never, the winter's never going to end. But there's a real sense in which the resurrection of Jesus is like that very first flower, that very first sprout as you're walking around your neighborhood or something and you see that first little green that has popped through or the first blossom on a tree that is beginning to sprout out of what looks to be a dead stick. That first thing that we see, the first glimmer that spring is here, the winter is ending, that first little bit of green that gives us heart and gives us hope that even though it still might be winter, for a while longer, spring is coming. There's a real sense in which Jesus's resurrection is like that. And it uh, but remember, we, we didn't understand that word firstborn of creation when we thought about firstborn of creation. We didn't understand that word firstborn to mean a chronological firstborn. We didn't then and we shouldn't hear either. Our, our flower or our blossom analogy is perhaps more helpful in Paul's explanation from 1 Corinthians 15 of Jesus' resurrection being the first fruit of the harvest. Rather, what Paul is getting after here, though, is that he is the firstborn of the dead. He is the foremost, the preeminent one of all of the dead. He is the oldest brother of the dead who receives the inheritance and then leads the family. The resurrection of Jesus in Colossians 1 makes him less like the first sprout or the first blossom, and it makes him more like Aragorn at the end of the return of the king, who becomes the king of the army of the dead. Those who had broken their oath of loyalty to the king, but now the king leads them out and releases them from their death. In his resurrection, Jesus becomes preeminent over all, and he leads out the formerly dead. He is preeminent over life and creation, and he is preeminent over death and recreation of making a new created world order. How? Well, verse 19, for in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The fractured universe, the rebel world, was at odds with its creator God. And all world religions intuitively know this to be true. And so all religions come up with ways to appease God to appease the gods, to do enough to fix the broken, to reconcile the conflict with God, even temporarily. But only Christianity comes to humanity and says, you can't. 
You cannot do it. You cannot reconcile yourself. The God of the Bible, made known to us in Jesus, comes to fix the problem himself, to turn the page of creation, to establish his kingdom forever, to seek and save the sinner by bringing the forgiveness of sins by the shedding of blood. Blood these days is is super valuable. There are huge blood shortages. Michael Bastaros has told us that he's had to delay uh, the beginning of heart surgeries because there hasn't been blood available. We've been trying hard to work with the blood banks to schedule a blood drive for our church, but they've canceled mobile drives out of precaution. And so we just encourage you to keep uh, finding those uh, normal and ongoing drives online and keep going to donate out of love for our neighbor. But in ancient times, there was no such thing as a blood transfusion. Once the skin is broken, blood can come out and it can become very difficult to stop. Or once the skin is broken and blood is exposed, it becomes very easy for invaders, even microscopic ones, to come in. And not just in ancient times, in 1924, less than 100 years ago, President Coolidge's son, 16-year-old Calvin Coolidge Jr., got a blister playing tennis. The, The blister ruptured, got infected, and he was dead within a week. Death by tennis. Not terribly funny, it's just that the world is a dangerous place. Human life is unbelievably vulnerable. And so keeping blood inside our body and protecting our blood from what's outside our body is what keeps us alive. And yet in our created state, our state of rebellion and sin, we are in a place of infection, a place of death. The last month has made us more aware of undetectable sickness than perhaps we've ever been in our lifetimes. And yet the reality of the sickness of sin, that of self-worship and self-living in defiance or in indifference against the God who has made us, this sickness is far worse. Sometimes it's detectable. Sometimes we see symptoms of this sin. Perhaps more often than not, especially if we're not aware of the sickness, we see these symptoms and we don't recognize them to be symptoms of our imminent and coming death, of our spiritual separation from God. And yet Jesus has come to recreate humanity, to give humanity a second birth, a spiritual rebirth, a blood transfusion on our behalf, his death for ours, our life becoming his. This is this kind of life, this kind of reconciliation to God we cannot bring on our own, this kind of sickness we cannot fix or heal in ourselves. Paul says that Jesus came to bring peace, the reconciled peace with God through his blood, his death on our behalf. One writer says, Buddha's dying words were strive without ceasing. His departing words, Buddha's words that he wanted all of humanity to remember most, strive without ceasing. Jesus says, or it is finished. And what a world of a difference that makes. Give me Jesus. Or to quote another pastor, Jesus didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. And he was just getting started. He was getting started in cosmic and universal recreation. And that's not to say that all is right in the world today. And there is still so much evil, so much pain, so much brokenness. There is still unemployment and coronavirus strains and death. And Paul will have much more to say about that in chapter two. But the page has turned. 
The book isn't completed. The story has not found its end, but the thaw has begun and the winter is ending. And the question then becomes, which side of the hinge are you on? Which age of creation are you living in? That of your first physical birth, moving along in anger or in distrust or in indifference to the glory of King Jesus, still separated from God and unreconciled to him? Or have you come to him for a second spiritual birth? Still weak, still tempted toward thinking life comes from all kinds of other sources, but ultimately at peace in his kingdom, joined to his body, the church, growing together with his people as we become like him. There's still so much uncertainty out there. There is so much anxiety and worry and loss, but King Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He knows of your loss. He knows of your concern. He knows of your death. And he has become all of it, that he might become preeminent over life and death to give you a hope and a future, an outcome which is fixed and secure. So to put together a couple of writers, including, including Paul, if Christ is not risen then nothing else matters. As soon as we end this meeting, you might as well just go eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. We might as well squeeze in as much fun and enjoyment in the few days that we have because nothing ultimately matters. Because there's ultimately no purpose for our life. If Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. But if Christ is risen, then nothing else matters. Not meaning that nothing else has meaning, but that his resurrection is the gravitational center of the universe and of our small lives. Our lives revolve around and ought to be completely transformed by his resurrection. Nothing else matters in that all of the anxiety and worry and loss and discomfort in this world is now flavored by, by, is transformed by his resurrection. And so as soon as we end this meeting, for those who share a resurrection by faith with Jesus, well then you too, go and eat and drink and be merry for yesterday we were dead. And the light pouring over and pouring out of his empty tomb sheds light on every bit of our lives, over every square inch of your life, over which Jesus says mine, which is the best and most joy-giving place to be in the universe, the captain the firstborn of life and death, the preeminent one over the army of the formerly dead now leads his people into transformation and into life for eternity. So let's walk with him and follow him, giving all of ourselves to him and holding back not one square inch, turning from other smaller and lesser gods and telling them, you are not my life, but turning to the glory of Jesus and in obedience and in love saying, you are my life. If you don't know that your sins are forgiven, if you don't know that you've been raised from the dead, if you don't know what it looks like to be more closely following Christ, the captain, we'd love to talk with you about these things, whether after the service in a a breakout room uh, that we might have after this service or in another time throughout the week. And then we we would ask just to come back even next week as we keep considering this incredible letter to the Colossians about who Jesus is and what he means for us Today, he has come to bring life from the dead, as indeed he is the firstborn of creation, of recreation, the firstborn, the preeminent one over life and death, and this changes everything. Let's pray in light of that. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have spoken, and through your word, 
the Lord Jesus you have created, but that you were not content to leave us in our created or our uh, first and original state of rebellion against you. You have created us good, but we have thrown off your goodness. But that you were not content to leave us there. You came to us. You pursued us and you brought a miraculous and powerful recreation. You have brought life. Help us to know the depths and the power of the resurrection in all areas of our life. Help we pray uh, those who are considering these things for the first time tonight. We're considering them afresh. Make known to them the power of the resurrection, what this means for their lives, both this week and for eternity. We pray that you would do a great and mighty work through the power of Christ, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead, in whom all things are created for and by and through. Lord Jesus, we pray all these things in your great and powerful name. Amen. hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.